Hello and welcome to the Manchester is Red podcast. My name is Stephen Rilston. I'm your host today and I'm joined by my two colleagues, Tyrone Marshall and Samuel Lockhurst. Samuel's had a little bit of time away, but he's back and he's raring to go this weekend. Samuel, how was your, how was your break and how are you? The, the downtime was very good, thank you. I didn't go all the way to New York during my, my week off, but it was it was very satisfying, very, very much so. We'll, we'll get on to that, I'm sure, in this podcast. There's plenty to discuss. Um, Ty, how are you today? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you, Stephen. I'm good. Unfortunately, I've been working the last two weeks and I'm actually off next week now when, when games resume. If there's uh, if there's any advice I can give young aspiring football journalists out there, it'd be don't marry a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> is there another trip to Portugal on the cards, Ty, or is it Blackpool Beach? Uh, it's France, actually. France. France, got, very nice. Um, yeah, yeah. I've got family in France as well. So jet setting, uh, jet setting all around Europe, Stephen. All Just, over the world. Unfortunately, more games are on. Yeah, international traveller. Um, we'll start with the international break on that subject, uh, Samuel. We'll just quickly get our teeth stuck into it before we move on to the, the kind of week's news. And we'll have to start with, with Scott McTominay, who was in fantastic form for Scotland. He scored four goals across two games, a brace against Spain. And I noticed today in the press conference, obviously there was a question about potentially moving McTominay to striker because he played there when he was younger, didn't he, Samuel? I mean, do you think that could be on the cards? And, and what did you think of his performances? Uh, not going off Ten Hag's answer to me where he very much confirmed that he saw him as a midfielder, which understand if they've got two number nines available at the moment. And it sounds like Anthony Marshall is actually still fit three weeks a on miracle. from resuming training. I know, I know it's uh, it's not April Fool's yet either. So uh, <laughs> it's it's genuinely true. We, you know, we, we're not um, we're, we're not trying to play a trick on anyone there. Uh, I suppose the uh, downside for McTominay is that nobody saw these goals unless they went on Twitter because international football in it, certainly in England now if you want to watch it and it's not an England game you have to subscribe to some new channel which is uh, is owned by a Norwegian company and they seem to have just about every other game going on there but I'm I'm certainly not desperate to watch European Championship qualifiers or Netherlands Gibraltar or Scotland Cyprus but occasionally there'll be a game of interest and uh, you know with the, the Cyprus game you think well you know, it's two goals against Cyprus. It's not not much to write home about, but two goals against Spain. Even this Spain, who really are a shadow of the the, the great teams between uh, two thousand eight and twenty twelve, and Spain have been in relative decline for a while, but it's still some going for Scotland to win two now, and for McTominay to get two goals against them. And certainly, the second one was very well taken. It was he's looking at his goals for United. I think he's got you know eighteen United goals. There is a similarity in his technique, the way he just hits a ball quite quite a pure manner on the na- on on the laces and uh, doesn't really think twice about it and he can be quite prompt with his shooting and that was very much how he scored the second goal the first one there was an element of fortune about it and it deflected past Aritha Balaga but a good good response from a player uh, given that the United club captain the previous week said that he doesn't think he has anything to prove at that level and you know, we can get into the minutiae of what Harry Maguire was referring to whether he's on about international level or just the, you know playing at a high level which is what England do what United do but it's not it's what he said pretty much jars with what Eric Ten Hag says in most press conferences which is good is not good enough and uh, satisfaction leads to laziness and Given that Maguire didn't have the best of nights for for England in Italy, and that you know he, he committed a foul and then given the ball away in the move that that led to Italy's goal, it was a bit of a strange thing to say. But I think with Maguire, 
he, he's approaching probably the end game now at United, and he it does feel like he's he's pretty much done at United. A, a lot might hinge on what happens with Victor Lindelof because he said that he might have to assess his situation in the summer. It's it's been quite curious the way that's played out in that United have got Maguire down to be sold in the summer. Yet in the last two games, he started ahead of Lindelof and there certainly wasn't a great deal of sense be- behind Lindelof not starting in, in, in Seville against Real Betis. You'd think that's a game that's suited to the way he plays as a centre-back. You could kind of see what Ten Hag was thinking in playing Maguire against Alexander Mitrovic in the cup quarter-final against Fulham, but Maguire got embarrassed by him and was booked for cynically uh, tugging at him. So although he's he's done well for England and did well for England at the World Cup specifically this season, it's it's not really done any... Uh, it's not done wonders for Maguire's stock at club level. He's still very much you know, a, a reserve centre-back. He, he might not be fourth-choice centre-back anymore, but if, if, you're the, if you're the United captain and uh, you're an £80 million defender, and he's, he is still the world's most expensive defender uh, coming out with that soundbite last week. As I said, it, it jarred with what te- Ten Hag's outlook is on, on things at United, and it jars with what United supporters expect from United players. Going back to McTominay for a second, I presume you both saw the Netherlands had 52 shots uh, against Gibraltar. Uh, yeah, did, did not score. Weghorst didn't <laughs> score. Like 52 shots. I reckon McTominay would have scored a few of those chances. I definitely. He I, was pretty I, brutal in his self-assessment, uh, Weghorst, he wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he's a good speaker, isn't he? Sometimes I think. Um, sticking with Maguire, then Ty, is it fair to say it's more likely that he's going to depart this summer? There's a few months remaining this season. Obviously, he slipped down the pecking order, but quite interesting. You know, as Samuel's just said he actually has played over Lindelof recently. Um, but do you think, in your opinion, this season is most likely to be his last at Old Trafford? Um, yeah, probably just about. I would, I would favour that outcome. But I think you had Lindelof in the international break, sort of pouring shade on his own future as well so you know there's no way united can afford to lose to lose both of them they are four you know as, as a group of four center halves they are probably as good as you're going to get in the premier league for all the stick that they get lindelof's very reliable maguire is is good at what he does in in certain games so you know they are a, a good group um the issue for maguire is is playing to keep his england place and i think there's you know in in a way I think he's 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 decent to what he does for United. If United have paid twenty five million for him and never made him captain, you probably look at him at third choice centre half and think, yeah, it's pretty pretty good that you know he's English, he ticks a homegrown box. But you know the, those those things didn't happen. They paid eighty million for him and made him captain after six months, and he's always going to have that price tag round his neck. United will always be associated with having an eighty million pound squad player, and it's 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 difficult for him to remain club captain if he stays at the club next season and his role is still starting one in four games against pretty pretty poor teams. You know, he, I think he spoke, um, I can't remember when it was, it might have been before the international break actually, about how if you, know, if you look at my record, we've won the last nine, I think it is now that he's played in, but you know, the hardest team they've played in that run is Fulham. The reality is he's, he's not really trusted to play any of the big six Um you know, in, in the entire season, probably the toughest game he's had is is Brighton or Brentford away. He just he just doesn't play against the good teams. Um, so you know, I, I I think he's become a bit of a um, I don't want to say joke figure. That's a bit harsh, but he's he's criticised for things that aren't his fault. I think at times, and that was the case last season. And I think a clean break probably suits both parties. To be honest, this summer, if United can can pocket thirty million for him, something like that, then. I think they'd probably see it as a good deal, but they would need to sign 
another centre half. I don't think there's anyone in the squad who would naturally fill that role as as third or fourth choice. I think it's too early for anyone like Ted and Mengi, for example. So I think they would have to sign someone. Um, and, and then, of course, you've got the, the Lindelof issue. I mean, I think Lindelof has always struck me as someone who's, who's pretty content playing that role. And um, but maybe maybe you know he'll get sick of it as well. So so yeah, I, I would lean towards it being his last season purely because I think it would it would suit all parties, but I don't think that's necessarily guaranteed. I think for him personally as well, a good time to move on after finally winning the trophy. He's won that trophy, he's got that piece of silverware and he can kind of leave knowing that he has won something during his time at the club. Although supporters will remember his time with uh, mixed memory, should we say. If we move on to the Old Trafford development story, then Samuel, um, from yesterday, uh, you wrote the line that they're in favour of redeveloping the stadium at the moment. Obviously, if the Glazers stay um, with their majority stake instead of building a new stadium from scratch. Can you tell the listeners a bit more about that, please, if they haven't already read the story? Yeah, there was, there was quite a lot of detail that I was able to gather on it over a a number of months essentially the way it was framed to me was that rebuilding the stadium knocking down old trafford that would actually be a quicker process and just modernizing old trafford is a lot more gradual i was told that there could be at least a year taken up by meetings with the council doing a town hall speaking to local residents who might have any issues about what united were planning Uh, so the first year of a 10-year plan is just on the planning nothing that's before you know a builder comes on the site or puts his hard hat on and the provisional plan is that it, there's a year dedicated to each stand um, so once they actually get into the construction of it and after you've done the construction or whilst you're doing the construction I, I can't quite remember whether it was simultaneously but if you're doing that you're going to look at new roadways new access um I think they see opportunities around the ground as well. The, the suggestion has been that the ticket office would be knocked down. The ticket office is based just behind the north stand, now known as the Sir Alex Ferguson stand. That would be knocked down and they think that they could have a hotel there. And that's probably something that United have missed out on for quite some time. There's the Premier Inn that's just down the road that they used to have a tie-up with. I'm not sure if they still do, but used to be able to have an, an overnight stay there and get a ticket. And of course, you've got the uh, the hotel football that's owned by uh, the, the class of ninety two members, which is pretty much a back in the days when there was some animosity between the club and um, those those former well those those club greats, and it was Ed Woodward who was running the show. It was almost seen as like a, a tank on United's lawn, but that's a much more you know a much more. Um, collegiate relationship now uh, that, that Richard Arnold is the chief executive, so. They've they've missed out on these opportunities, but they think that they could have a hotel uh, in the northwest. I think it's the northwest corner of the ground, roughly where the ticket office is. The east end car park, which is you come out the east end, and the the, the gates that are there is where the Trinity statue is. It's the car park people use on a a non match day if you want to go into the mega store or have a look around. They think that they could have a fan park there, which is something that they've got at Anfield behind, uh, I think it's behind the main stand. And the main stand was redone. Very impressive. That reopened in 2016. So again, that's another place where I think, you know, the ho- hotel football, That I think that's what they do. A lot of fans go in on match day. So United are actually losing income by those fans going in there rather than going to a dedicated hub. Uh, for for supporters, I think the plan originally, when Gary Neville 
announced his retirement, his testimonial was that he would arrange for some uh, some fan park to be, to be uh, a hub where supporters could gather. In the end, I think he just took that idea and has, has made his own money out of it with the rest of his uh, old teammates. Um, in terms of other other ones, well, it, I, I was told that I think it's about 52,000 they think they can keep the capacity at. They can still have 52,000 while the ground is under construction. Uh, one of the plans mooted is just to have the second tier dedicated uh, as hospitality seats which is pretty much the case at Wembley if anyone's been to the new Wembley stadium uh, if you're in the second tier you've you seem to have some form of hospitality ticket it's not necessarily the high-end hospitality uh, but there are hospitality seats in just about every section of the stadium uh, they I think the south stand sooner or later whether it's a new stadium whether it's not a new stadium that is just going to get demolished knocked down uh, because it is it's quite dated compared to the other stands uh it's not it's not symmetrical with the other stands as well in the it's only one tier every other uh stand there they're on a on the same level uh, i think they were look they've been looking at certainly having a third tier on the stretford end and the scoreboard end i think the roofing would have to change they think that the acoustics can be improved and the acoustics with the shape of old Trafford, it doesn't feel conducive to generating a properly good atmosphere you look at a lot of modern stadia they're they're bowls really and and that's the way sound's going to carry a lot more easily and in terms of the prospect of actually having a new old Trafford, they would look at rotating the stadium so the stretford end would back onto the railway line rather than backing onto uh, the industrial part behind it. Uh, they think that's a good way of being able to get round uh, the railway line issue, which has proven prohibitive in terms of uh, expanding the south stand and, and taking the capacity uh, further up. Um, but as I said, in uh, sorry, as not as I said, as I wrote in the story, uh, Joel Glazer's preference is to keep Old Trafford even though he's not stepped foot inside Old Trafford, he's not stepped foot in Manchester for nearly four years. And that view is shared by uh, people on the ground in, in Manchester as well who, who work at the club uh, at Old Trafford on a daily basis. One, because it's Old Trafford, it's, it's an institution, essentially. But also they believe that because it's got that heritage, because it's got that character, if they were to move into a new stadium, they they the concern they have is that within a pretty quick time frame, people wouldn't be particularly impressed by it. I mean, the Emirates Stadium opened only 16 years ago, I think, or 16 and a half years ago. And already the other week we saw the roof leaking there, but also that has always struck me as quite a soulless bowl. I've never been a great fan of, of the new Wembley as a supporter experience. I mean, it was pretty good with Newcastle fans in there recently. And it certainly, when I covered some England games against Poland and Scotland, it was a hell of a lot better. But that's because there were some very ardent supporters, travelling supporters there to enhance the atmosphere. More often than not, it's always been pretty soulless. The Emirates has always been soulless. And so the argument is that although Tottenham Stadium is absolutely magnificent and as a supporter experience as a journalistic experience it is as good as it gets within a certain period of time people might think well this is a bit soulless it's just like most other new stadiums and you can imagine there are some Tottenham fans that are still pining for White Hart Lane because that was what they were used to for decades and, and that did have character even though it was a, a pretty antiquated ground when, when I used to go there as a fan and, and as a journalist so it's, it's interesting how there are different viewpoints on it but the fact of the matter is that they have looked at both 
options. They've looked at the option of knocking down Old Trafford. They've looked at the option of renovating it. It needs renovating if it's going to be kept. Um, I mean, I'd be fascinated to know what... I, I certainly think United, what they should be doing, and I know they have been doing these surveys, engaging fan opinion on what season ticket holders would like, whether it's a new stadium or just improving Old Trafford. I, I'd, I'd be very interested to see what the results of that are. I think they should be transparent with that rather than just keeping it to themselves because you'd get a pretty good gauge of of, of what fans want. And ultimately, that's what should be prioritised because it's the supporters who pay their money, who go to the games, who have had some you know, pretty naff facilities and some pretty torrid experiences. I mean, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people saw the video, it's, it's a disgusting video, of the, the toilet old I was just about to come on to that. The other week, <laughs> overflowing. Yeah. And to be honest, sometimes when we, as, as you know, sometimes in the men's, in the um, in the press room, the toilets are pretty filthy in there as well. And uh, you, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't have that experience at, at a stadium that, once held a, a Champions League final and is, is is home to Manchester United. So there's a lot of room for improvement. And as you said, that that story's been on the site for just over 24 hours. So I'm sure there's some there's some details that I've not uh, factored into, sorry, included in there. But, uh, you know, there's, there's there's certainly been a lot of things. There's, there are a lot of things under consideration. I think season ticket holders want three things. Number one, a roof that doesn't leak. Number two, toilets that don't overflow. And three, should we get rid of the Carlin as as I've suggested and get supporters proper there? Get <laughs> the, mo- the most important. The most important. Best of last. Best of last. Uh, Ty, where do you stand on this really? Because uh, a lot of people kind of discuss the merits of maybe completely relocating a new site, for example, but Old Trafford's got such history and all the memories that have been made there and a lot of supporters would like to see and see that redeveloped. Where do you kind of stand on that issue? Yeah, you know, I think the the priority, if it's possible, has, has got to be, um, you know, keeping that stadium and, and upgrading that stadium. I think that that has to be the aim. And you've seen that the best example of that is Anfield, really, and, and what the, the American owners at Liverpool have, have done with Anfield. And that's on a much smaller scale than, than what United are looking to do with Old Trafford. I mean, that the capacity there was mid-40s, I think. Even when the new Anfield Road end opened, it's only going to be 61,000. But it shows what you can do with you know, a, a bit of invention and, and thinking about these things outside the box, I guess, in a way. And, and Liverpool have got a bit more space, but, you know, the, it, it was always talked about that they were going to move to a, to a different stadium. And in the end, they found a solution that, that keeps them at Anfield. And I think for United, the ideal solution has got to be Old Trafford. And they've got space in, in certain areas of that site. Obviously, the stadium's probably not located brilliantly in, in terms of the actual site, but... I think there's there's probably ways around it now with with modern technology and and things like that 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 can afford them to to stay to stay at Old Trafford to keep that ground and and make improvements that just upgrades it and and lifts the capacity a bit. Yeah, I'd definitely be in favour of redevelopment. I think I think keeping that history and is very important, even if it's on the same location. To be fair, I mean Spurs obviously moved in the but it's the same location, the same site. And I think you can, it's important for supporters to feel that history and feel that connection when, when going to games. We'll leave that there for part one, and we'll be back in a moment for part two. Samuel, so the big story on Friday, obviously both you guys were carrying in for the press conference, but uh, the news that Luke Shaw is close to agreeing a new contract. Can you tell a bit more about that, please? 
Uh, because yeah, Samuel absolutely United's, loves discussing contracts. Yeah, contract stories. Yeah, they are. Um, they're, they're nearly as tedious as takeover talk. Uh, but go on, Samuel. It's a formality. Well, Take it off. Go on. It's. I mean, United extended his contract earlier in the year or, or, or earlier in the seasons. So that was always an indication that they would want to to have a complete renewal. Uh, that will be announced sooner or later. I mean, Ten, Ten Hag was kind of caught on the back foot about that because um, the, the, the sourcing of it came from outside the club as is often the case with these stories. United said that they won't, wouldn't be announcing thing, anything before the press conference. Sometimes they have done that uh, with, with previous deals. I think Phil Jones and Ashley Young uh, in Ashley Young's case an actual uh, A4 piece of paper was held out, uh, handed out to us. It was it was like being back in the 80s when someone would come outside the, the stadium and just hand out a press release to, to journalists waiting. So I suppose from Luke Shaw's perspective, it's nice not to, um, you know, follow on from, from the Phil Jones uh, contract announcement. Uh, in, in I think it was February 2019, just before a press conference that that news dropped. So with with Shaw, he's, he's got there in the, when they signed him in 2014, you thought, well, that he needs to be United, or he should be United's next left back. So left back for the next decade, and he has been. But it's been a pretty rocky road to that point. Uh, obviously, a horrendous injury in, in Eindhoven. His first season, he was very injury prone. He's had the tough love from Louis Van Gaal. He's had the tough love from Jose Mourinho. He's had uh, fat shaming online, which was uh, you know pretty torrid really uh there was there was even a journalist who was um joining in or actually leading that against him but he's had some he's had some good seasons he's had one particularly excellent season i think in 2020-21 he was united's best player the season he actually won the smack busby player of the year award uh, when he was reminded of that he said you could have picked anyone out of the hat he was actually embarrassed by it so it, you know being brutally honest so far he still had just the one truly good season in his United career. And he is somewhat fortunate to still be at the club, given that he entered the last year of his contract before he signed signed a new one in, in late 2018. But he, he's got resilience about him. And going off this season, he was dreadful at Brentford, as they all were. He lost his place, and rightly so. And he regained it. And since then, he's he's not really looked back. There's There's still been the odd... Uh, egregious performance like Anfield but again everyone was horrific at Anfield by and large he's been very good this season he had a pretty good World Cup as well it's difficult to identify a left back who's had a a better season in the Premier League it's not been a a season where there've been so many left backs who've been really impressive I mean Zinchenko's been very good for for our (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, I I thought Dan Byrne was having a pretty solid season until he got humiliated by Anthony in the cup final. That's always going to happen. But but Shaw's, yeah, Shaw's Shaw's done well uh, this season as, you know, the player ratings of the season so far gave him eight, which I think was was pretty fair and um you know it obviously helps united that he was suspended for the for the ukraine game so he's had a, a week off ahead of the newcastle match and he, he deserves it i mean it's it's a logical extension because not only does it mean they've you know they're keeping a player who's been in pretty good form and has has done decently during his united career but they've got malassia in as as a younger backup and uh, they're a step closer to getting rid of alex tellers permanently I think people forget how bad that injury was actually and how well he's done to kind of sustain or get back to those kind of levels pre-injury. 
Um, oh, it was horrific. I, I was at that. Uh, yeah, brilliant few years. A horrible, horrible injury, wasn't it? Yeah. A really horrible injury. Yeah, I was. I was. Time. I think that was my second European away game covering United, and you knew immediately that it was dreadful. And obviously, with, uh, with the clips on Twitter, and um, it was pretty quick in Getty that it showed the extent of it, and you knew there and then. Sadly for him, that was him out for the season and uh, until the the final against Newcastle, he'd never actually played in a winning final for United and they had uh, had a few in his, his first few seasons and I think the first one he missed, that was because of the that injury in Eindhoven and then the Europa League final 2017, he missed that through injury and then and also the, the League Cup final earlier that year and the FA Cup final the next year, he was just not even included in the squad. So uh, he's he's had a hell of a lot of setbacks and there have been times where he's really needed to get up to speed. I mean, I, was, I put it in a piece about him a couple of years ago, but there was a time when he, uh, he turned up late at Carrington for training and he, he was asked, you know, why are you late? And he said his mother had overslept. And the, the staff burst out laughing, thinking he was joking. And he, he was deadly serious. His mum had overslept and had forgotten to awake, to wake him up. So he was um, he was pretty junior, to say the least, in those formative years at United. But he's he's bucked up his ideas, and I think he's got a, a good family around him and a good partner who's been a, a good influence as well on him. And uh, he's he's come out the other side. When I was on the desk in my younger days at university doing work experience, I should have used that excuse and see if I could get a few laughs and if people <laughs> realised it was a joke <laughs> that my mum hadn't woke us up. Ty, one of the juicier parts of the press conference today uh, was the Rashford uh, bit where he, you know, he defended them, obviously, and he discussed his trip to New York, as Samuel uh, hinted at earlier on. Um, it made, for me, complete sense for Rashford to withdraw from that squad, didn't it? He's, he knows his body more than anyone. He, he did a sit-down with journalists recently and discussed the lengths that he's went through with injury. And it just made sense for him to pull out, take a rest, and kind of recuperate before Newcastle this weekend, doesn't it? And I think it was a, a good decision, all in all, really. <clears throat> yeah, I think so. I, I think the key was in the wording when it was described as a minor knock. Um, you know, this, this wasn't, you know, it wasn't a hamstring, it wasn't a muscle injury or anything like that. It was, you know, as soon as he got kicked, I think he was down, he was down appealing for a, a free kick for the goal, wasn't he, I think, um, in in the game, in the Fulham game. And I think, you know, it could have even have happened then, but a minor knock suggests something as simple as a, a kick, something like that. And yeah, as soon as that happened, I think it, it was probably always going to happen that he was going to withdraw his... He's played an awful lot this season. I think there's there's two games that he hasn't been involved in for United. 44 of the 46 he's played in. The two he wasn't involved in were, were two Europa League games back in September. Even even games when he's not started, he's often been brought on and had to influence them. You think of Wolves. Um, there's another one he came on at half-time. He came on against Forest and set up two goals. Came on against Charlton and scored two goals. So, you know, if, even when he's tried to rest him, he's often had to come on and, and make the difference. And, you know, I, I did a piece during the social break. I think he's played three thousand two hundred minutes this season already. So, yeah, he he needed the rest, and, and you know, I, I don't think, I think the fact he was in New York suggested that he was he was going to be fit. I don't think he'd have gone to New York if he'd pulled his hamstring or done something to his calf or groin or anything like that that was serious. He's he's got a minor knock, which suggests to me it was a, a very minor kick, and away you go and, and off you go. And, and Ten Hag saw the New York trip as a a positive thing really recharging and and you know sort of getting getting your mindset right before the end of the season so yeah it did it did make total sense and you know I'm I'm sure there's 
Gareth Southgate was quick to kind of clarify his comments on international duty. I'm sure there is some frustration there that he, he has pulled out of, of, I think it's five squads he's pulled out of now, but it was understandable this time around. I think he's, you know, he's, it feels like he's going to make that left-wing position his own for England at, at some point. This was probably seen by England as an opportunity for him to do that with Sterling not in the squad, but yeah. it is a matter of time. England won both games anyway. Rashford got a rest. So in the end, I think probably everyone was a winner. You've talked about the need to bring Rashford on tight in some games this season. Do you think United are a little bit over-reliant on him? Or was that a stupid question? I looked at the numbers and crunched the data. I think he's responsible for 35% of the first team's goals. And I mean, if those goals start to dry up, that's going to become a bit of a problem, isn't it? Yeah, it is. You know, you, To a degree, you're always... When someone's scoring at the rate that Rashford's scoring, you're always going to be a little reliant on them. But it is, it is pretty clear that there's no one really in that squad who's... You know who's backing him up. I think Fernandez is next on ten. The, there's issues. I was going to say from the wing. I mean Rashford is a winger, um, and we know what what Vegas scoring record is. Those two goals now, but there's Both issues from you know well. Anthony. And <laughs> that's a, that's his strength. Um, you know Anthony and and Jaden Sancho aren't aren't producing enough goals. So there is clearly a, an issue for more goals. I mean maybe when Anthony Martial is is fit enough to to actually play a game, perhaps he'll he'll produce some but yeah I, th- I think they are clearly reliant on them and to a degree you're always going to be reliant on on someone like that who is producing that many goals but you know if Ten Hag had said he, he can't play at Newcastle today I think we'd all be having a discussion now saying where are those goals coming from and I don't think anyone could could really give an answer of, of where they would come from so I do think that is something of a concern for them going forward and going into next season. We'll discuss Marshall in a moment, but we'll just leave it there for part two. We'll be back in a jiffy for part three. Samuel, there was obviously discussion about Marshall today. Um, He's been in training for three weeks now, but he's not actually been part of the squad. Um, he might finally make a return to the squad against Newcastle on Sunday. If what, The question I kind of want, want to know, and I don't know if it was discussed at the press conference really, the answer, sorry, um, is why hasn't he not been in the squad? If he's been training for three weeks, surely he's been fit to, to feature, at least, or be in the bench. It, I mean, it is a good question, and it's. I, I've got to apologise. I should have asked it as my follow-up question, possibly. <laughs> um, but I... I, I, I I suspect from Ten Hag's perspective with the internationals coming up and he may have looked at those games and thought, well, we can get by without him given that we've got by without him for most of the season. I'll give him extra time to be ready for the Newcastle game because that is a big game and that is a game he could influence. He he influenced a very big game at the start of the season against Liverpool. He got two goals at City. They were 6-1 down, but he still came on and, and had an impact. He, he scored the penalty and um, he, he got a goal before that as well. Um, I mean, those games at the start of the season, when he was involved, he was always doing something in them. As soon as he started a succession of games, everybody remembered ah, what, why why United why United don't really miss Marshall that much, which is because he's just too flaky and uh, he he is always going to struggle for for consistency. And he's you know they they've they've made their minds up on him in that they they want to sign a a new number nine in the summer and they want to sell Marshall in the summer, whether they do or not. Uh, is is going to be quite interesting to see how that pans out because something would have to you know maybe it's 
it's it's looking at a club who has historical interest in him and trying to um, engage them on it because a lot of clubs will look at his stats the lack of goals in the last few seasons, the fact that he's not completed 90 minutes in the Premier League since January 2021. He's not completed 90 minutes for United since September 2021. The injury record this season, the injury record uh, a couple of years ago, he missed pretty much the last two months of the 2021 season. And uh, although although he's, he's still 27 and you could still get quite a lot of mileage out of him, there are a lot of red flags to signing someone that United would want a pretty decent fee for, given that he's the number nine for Manchester United and he is a France international. So although he's fit and, and Ten Hag says he's available, I wouldn't be surprised, one, if he does not get off the coach at Newcastle on <laughs> Sunday and is nowhere to be seen. And I certainly wouldn't be surprised if Veghorst is leading the line again I mean, Ten Hag said unprompted today that he, he thinks United are better with Veghorst in the team, which a, a lot of people would, would dispute that assessment. But it it depends what context you're looking at it in that uh, yeah, they, they've not really had much of a choice with, with Marshall absent for these last... He's, he's been absent for the last 18 games and that's co- that coincided with Veghorst coming into the team, which again... You can talk about the physical nature of it, but it's never. It strikes me it's not a coincidence that as soon as a striker or a threat turns up, um, Marshall capitulates. Whether it's his form, whether it's his fitness, and obviously he had fitness issues in the first first half of the season, but to have had a hip injury that has sidelined him for almost three months is is, is some going for a, for a twenty seven year old. Um, athlete like him and you, we, we know how how good he can be when he does hit his stride but when that last happened is is it's it's difficult to to recall he had a very good season in 2019-20 and then the start of the next season he got sent off in the third game and he never really truly recovered from it that season I think he only got seven goals and he didn't end up going to the Euros with France and France have had a couple of strikers come through in Nkunku and they've got Moani now as well, who who started the last couple of European uh, Championship qualifying games. So he's he's found himself a long way down the pecking order for France. And of course, United are, are actively looking to replace him next season. Uh, so I, 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 it's, it's a strange one for us picking our panel team because you don't, you don't want to put Vekos there because he can't score. And you feel a bit, you do feel a bit daft putting Marshall there, but ultimately he is he is the main number nine. If he's fit, they've they've got to start him sooner or later. But I I, I suspect that Sven Botman and Fabian Shah wouldn't be too daunted by the prospect of of coming up against Marshall. And in fairness to Vegkors in the first half against Newcastle in the uh, League Cup final, he, he did all right, and he was he was un, unlucky with that that shot that that Carrius tipped away. I don't know if either of you have actually checked the panel ahead of Sunday, but I did put my team in. I did start Marshall. That's my preferred striker for Sunday. And I just thought... Gone with Marshall as well. For, yeah, if he's trained for three weeks, he's, he's surely got to be fit. After full training for three weeks, you know what I mean? Throw him in. Um, it probably won't be 90 minutes, will it? That's the thing. It, it, it'd be 45 or, or yeah, 60. I think it, it is. The yeah, the chance. Yeah. Um, regarding the midfield selection, though, Ty, for Newcastle on Sunday at St. James's Park, um, I thought the midfield was a bit of a mess uh, against Fulham in the final game before the international break. Obviously, McTominay, Sabitza and Fernandes started in the three. Um, I thought Fred was pretty good when he came on. Uh, who would you start in the three on Sunday? Would you agree with me? And probably for Fred and then, despite McTominay's form, have him on the bench? 
I virtually always agree with you, Stephen. So it would, yeah, for me, it would be, um, it, it's got to be McTominay, Fred and Fernandez. I, th- I think that'll be the, the three. Um, you know, it's, it's a midfield. We know a lot about that. That trio doesn't exactly surprise anymore. We we know what they can do. We've seen them under, under Solskjaer. I think United fans probably thought they'd moved on from the McFred days, but uh, not not just yet. It's kind of, you know, I, I wrote a PS piece yesterday and said it's kind of back to the day job for McTominay this weekend from, from that, freer role for, for Scotland it's it's back to being the holding player at United and having to try and, and do what Casemiro does I mean I, I don't think he's a natural holding player McTominay he's he's, he's quite hard to pin down in a way he probably needs a position now because you know you, you two spoke before about how he played as a striker at, coming through the academy Scotland have used him as a centre back in a back three before so he, he you know he's almost played every area centrally on the pitch and Tenag's brought him on a couple of times this year as, as a number 10, almost in the way he used Vegos as a number 10. Um, late on away at Leeds and, and at the new Camp, he's used McTominay in that role off the bench uh, a couple of times, just as that advanced midfielder to get on the end of things and, and cause chaos. His best, not his best skill, but one of his one of his skills is, is kind of timing those runs forward. And I think Solskjaer unleashed that a little bit at times and, and he, he's not going to do that playing in the holding midfield role in, in this midfield under under Ten Hag. You saw it at Scotland. You mentioned his four goals before. I thought the, the most the most noticeable thing of all of them was that every single one of them was a was a strike running onto the ball into the into the penalty area. You know, it was a classic. It's almost a little bit Lampard esque, goals esque in a way, which <laughs> I'm sure I'm not able to take being, <laughs> being that, in that company. That. But I mean in terms of <laughs> in terms of that one aspect of his game of timing those runs to time those runs to be where the ball is in the penalty area from midfield. I mean, Lampard got so many goals like that, and Tomine doesn't do it often. McTominay doesn't do it often, but doesn't really have the the freedom to do it that often either. Playing for United, so so yeah, I think it will be that midfield. I don't think we'll see McTominay doing it, um, and it, you know the midfield is going to be a key area because I don't think it's it's a surprise to anyone that uh, that United struggled without Casemiro, apart from Ten Hag, maybe you. Who disagreed with with my assessment of that situation two weeks ago? But yeah, of the four games he suspended for, I think this is the one we all looked at and thought that's the one you'd you'd really want Casemiro available for. They've been quite lucky, really, with the the suspension that three of the games are at Old Trafford. Um, but this one is is the one where you look at it and think that could be the one where they really do miss Casemiro. I think Especially the Newcastle interest. Well, yeah, I think the Newcastle interest in McTominay is fascinating, really, because I think Howe wants him to play in that number six holding role. But and obviously, that's where he's played predominantly for United. But he's always been better in that box to box number eight, really, hasn't he? And as you said, Ty, making those late runs into the box. Yeah, definitely. So I wouldn't consider him really as a player that is a natural and sitting in front of that defence and protecting the back line. Um, he wants Gamaris to play a bit further forward, I think. Regarding that game again, Samuel on Sunday, I kind of looked into the away form this season against quote unquote top clubs. And if you look at the, the quote unquote big six um, of who United have played away this season, they've took one point from games on the road against City, Chelsea, Arsenal, and Liverpool. Obviously, Casemiro's late equaliser at Stamford Bridge in October was that point. Is that an area for concern, do you think? Because although they've beat all those teams at home and the Royal Trafford form has been fantastic. I think the one criticism of Ten Hag this season and, and this United team is they've perhaps struggled on the road against better sides. And I think on Newcastle on Sunday, obviously they're sitting fifth now. Um, it's going to be an electric atmosphere. And I think it's going to be a real test for that team. 
it will be a genuine concern if they've still got a record like that this time next season. I think for now they can kind of be sanguine with it because nobody's expecting a title challenge from them. Nobody was ever expecting that from them. So given that they're third, you can kind of okay say that's that's a room to that's room for improvement next season because they did beat City, Liverpool, Arsenal, uh, Tottenham at home. So you, you can't have it always both ways. But obviously if you go on a certain run of games against these top teams without winning any of them, then it's it's going to get a lot more attention. It certainly did about 18 months uh, into Mourinho's tenure. He still hadn't had a win against one of the other so-called you know, so-called big six. I, ha- I hate using that phrase, especially after the Super League, but sometimes you've got <laughs> to separate them from the rest. And maybe it will be a new big six next season with with Newcastle if they manage to finish up there. But I think more beyond that as well, you, you look at their record against the teams they've played away from home in the top 10. They've only had one win. That was against Fulham. Uh, that was a stoppage time time uh, winner from Garnacho. The equaliser at Chelsea was a stoppage time goal as well. So it's Ten Hag has touched upon it, and that although United do, I mean, they are a team in his image. I don't think anyone can really dispute that. The way he's improved certain players who were there already and he, who who he inherited, and the players he's brought in, and how they've changed the identity. Uh, particularly uh, the defensive identity of the team, but they are still quite a way off from being a controlling team. Uh, I think probably one of the um, you know, the biggest pluses from the response to to the Anfield game was against Betis. It was probably their most dominant and creative performance all season. When you consider the amount of chances they had that night, they they should should easily have scored a couple more goals. Uh, the opportunities they had, that the four one scoreline did flatter Betis, and so that was that was a positive response to to one of those performances. And I, I completely agree with you in terms of the the test of their metal going to St James's because if they do lose this game and then Tottenham win against Everton on Monday night, having started the weekend or the match week in third, they drop down to fifth. And then all of a sudden, there's a hell of a lot of pressure on a team who uh, a lot of punters looking ahead to the restart of the Premier League this weekend have think that it's a fait accompli that United are going to finish third when it's not. It's a lot tighter than that. I know there are games in hand to take into account and it does help certainly that the two matches they've got next week are at home against Brentford and Everton. Then it's Nottingham Forest away after that and watching how well Newcastle performed at Forest, who won quite a long unbeaten home run in the league. It does give other clubs a hell of a lot more hope going there. And you know, I mean, the fact that Newcastle ended the run uh, helps and the, the way they did it helps them as well in terms of taking that momentum into this game. So it's, it's going to be pretty fascinating. I, I suppose, yeah, Watching United in, in certainly around late February and into March, they did look knackered. They did look like they were a team that were in need of a breather. And if you look at the players who could or should start uh, at Newcastle, Shaw's had a week off because he got sent off in Italy. De Gea has not played in the internationals. Varane didn't play in the internationals. Uh, Dallo, I think, only started one of Portugal's two games. Obviously, Lissandro Martinez was with Argentina, but Fred had two weeks off. He wasn't called up. Uh, Sabitzer, if he starts, he didn't play in the second game for Austria, and it appears as though he trained at Carrington this week. Rashford has had time off as well. Anthony, I think, only came on as a sub for Brazil. 
in Morocco. And if Ten Hag does dare to start Martial, he's he's not played since January. So they've they've got a much fresher team than they would have had they been playing Newcastle I don't know, a week after uh, the Fulham game. So that does help. But it's you know I don't think a draw would necessarily be a bad result for United going to Newcastle. It certainly was last season. The performance was particularly troubling last season they were very lucky to to come away with a 1-1 there but given how Newcastle have improved immeasurably this year uh, this season I, I think a point would be pretty decent for United ahead of two home games it was a scrappy Cavani goal, wasn't it? I think around the 75th minute, or around that time anyways, to, for the 1-1 in that game in December last year. Yeah. Um, I said ahead of the, the Carabao Cup final, I didn't give Newcastle much chance at all, really, because their attacking for the, the quality in the final third had gone a bit stale. Um, but they've really, from what I've saw, really got that spark again, uh, just before the break. And I was talking to you, Samuel, about it, but Isaac's helped massively. He looks a, a real quality player and he should have been starting ahead of Wilson. Oh, yeah, he um, should have been starting weeks and weeks ago. Yes. Yeah. Regarding your expectations, Ty, for Sunday, what are you really expecting from the game? And Samuel's given us a lovely segue into that because I wanted to discuss just as we end their position in the table because I was trying to tease a bit of title talk, but I've gone from that to looking at the table and they're only three points clear of fifth. How has this happened in the last few weeks? And do you think there's danger of kind of complacency yeah. maybe setting in or do you think that'll happen? I, I wouldn't have thought so. Um, but, you know, the, 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 issue, the issue is that I think they're the quality of their performances did start to dip towards the end of that stretch between the World Cup and, and this international break. And I think it was clear they were starting to get tired. And certainly the Fulham performance, while it was 11 against 11, was a very tired performance. And if they do if they do lose on Sunday, then I think suddenly you're looking at the top four race being, being bang open, especially with United still having to go to Tottenham later this month. Those... Those are the two games, really, that are going to decide a lot of this narrative. I mean, if United win at Newcastle and win at Tottenham, then it's you know it's it's game over. It's it's top four easily. It's it's almost certainly third. If they lose this weekend, then it's it's very much kind of up in the air again, especially with the fact that they've got so many fixtures to play. I mean, Newcastle and Tottenham, I think, have only got the the league left, haven't they? So they they've both just got those twelve games for Newcastle. Only ten, I think, for Tottenham um, to focus on and, and give their all on. The great unknown is that, that Newcastle are in a completely unknown situation for them, an unprecedented situation for, for this group of players. And Tottenham are, are a laughing stock and a shambles, aren't they? So no one really knows how they're going to react to, to what's going on to what's going on there. But they are, you know, they're the Premier League's joke club at the moment. So and they've been you know they've been playing poorly under Conte. It's difficult to know how they're gonna react. I don't think anyone saw the appointment of Stellini to the end of the season coming or his caretaker come in and you could say that they played a lot better under Stellini a few weeks ago when, when Conte was back in Italy, but still feels like a very strange move. And obviously with everything that's happened around Paratici this week, they they are just a bit of a laughing stock at the moment. So I think there's you know, there's there's uncertainty around both of United's rivals for that. But I do think if, if they lost this weekend, we'd certainly be having a debate that top four is is by no means done now. But at the same time if if they get a win then they take a big step towards it. And on the quality of performances for the last, what, 20 league games, you'd say United really should, really should go and get it done now. We'll end it there then, gents. Ty, you're at City Liverpool tomorrow, aren't you? But Samuel, you're up in St James's yeah. Park on Sunday. So um, uh, I'll say to Samuel, make sure you get yourself a bottle of brown ale uh, and some stotty bread if you get the chance. And 
Go on, Ty, go ahead. What are you going to say? It's quite near the car park in I'll give you some tips, Sammy, if one of the messages I can... I've got, I've got family that control all the car parks in Newcastle. Yeah. Well, I, I missed it. I missed it last season because I, 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 I missed it last season because I had COVID. So uh, I, I, I no, had yeah, gotcha. uh, an unfortunate position of having to cover a game from from home, which is is never great. Uh, pretty soulless, but yeah, um, it was it was probably the best stadium during the COVID games in that you were put in a hospitality box uh, to to watch the <laughs> matches. So it was quite pleasant. Unfortunately, I did check the cupboards. There was there, there weren't any cheese and biscuits. Or Come on, Mike Ashley was in charge. He wasn't he wasn't going to leave anything cleared. for you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, the cupboards were were bare. They you know there, there was the proof there and there. The cupboards were definitely bare under Mike Ashley. <laughs> St James's Park. What I remember from last season is is driving home in in thick fog down the M1 and on the M62, listening to Scott Boland take six for seven or whatever it was, and, and England get dismantled for yeah. whatever it was in in on the third. I think it was the third day of the MCG test. So, so yeah, it, it was a cracking atmosphere for the game, but the drive home was. Uh, I was going to say it was. It's always nice when you've got a drive home at, at like midnight to have some kind of sport to listen to, but it was pretty depressing all the same with mm. a wicket falling pretty much every two or three balls to to Scott Boland so yeah that's my that's one of my memories from from Newcastle away last season should we start a cricket podcast even though I mean I really don't really like the sport but I'll happily host it lads if you want to right. shout <laughs> yeah well of course <laughs> get a new sponsor uh, we'll leave it there then thanks again for your time thank you uh, Tyrone thank you Stephen and thank you very much Samuel as usual thank you very much Stephen And thanks to listeners. Have a great weekend. Take care.